Hey, this is Julio. Hey, this is Steve. Before the podcast starts, we want to welcome and give you the opportunity to support our ministry by visiting our website at www.bridgemenlaredo.org. Scroll down to the bottom of any page and you'll find the PayPal donate button. Bridge Ministries exists to share the glorious good news of Jesus Christ and to equip people to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. If you would like to help us in our mission of making affordable or free Bibles and Christian books available, and also to check out the orphanage that we support, visit our website. God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinkings and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lust and their hearts to impurity, to, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. That is Romans verses 19 through 25. I am your host, Julio Omar Rodriguez, and this is Bridge Radio out of the great state of Texas, baby. Texas. Texas. <laughs> and this is my co-host over here, right in front of me, <laughs> Abraham. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm back. I'm back to Laredo. I'm really just, uh, I've been coming down here a lot. You have. Like, you uh, have been coming down a lot. Yeah, yeah, so really excited to be back, guys, with you. So uh, we have a special guest on today. Yeah, I'm excited, man. I'm uh, I'm nerding out here, and I'm ready. I'm ready. I, at the very beginning of the year, we we I, I started scheduling some people to come on, and I know this one here today is one that I've been looking forward to. I know you so, have it marked on your calendar yeah. with just like little balloons and. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess so. Um, but um, uh, anyway, um, what what are you drinking? What are you drinking right now uh, from the coffee ha- shop, man? I'm having an Ethiopian Bridge coffee. Uh, really delicious. Yeah. Uh, again, you guys do have the best coffee down here. We do have the best coffee. You know, I mean, I stopped going to Starbucks. I mean, <laughs> that's I, pagan coffee, that, dude. Yeah, I know that's pagan coffee. <laughs> it was pretty funny when uh, I showed up with uh, with uh, Starbucks uh, the last time I was here, and uh, Steve, uh, uh, the the president, was out, and we we text we texted him the picture of of the Starbucks. That, oh yeah. Uh, yeah and, oh yeah. And, and, and you're, you're laughing in the background. He, I was. I he said he was gonna fire me. Yeah, yeah I, I thought he was really gonna fire me. <laughs> me in with a pig and coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. All right, guys. Well, actually, I, I said this in the last podcast, that Ethiopian blend, I'm not even joking, guys. If you're in the community, right, if you're here in our location, or even if you're out of town, uh, out of state or whatever, and you come in and you want to give us, uh, pay us a visit, man, this Ethiopian blend, I had a 16-ounce. If I would have had maybe two more ounces or something, I would have broke out in a panic attack because the concentration of caffeine in that thing is insane. I know. Yeah, it's the strong. It's the strongest that we have. I'm, I'm glad that there's an urgent care just down the street. So just in <laughs> case you start getting some like really rapid heart palpitations, yeah. you can just like check you in. Yeah, yeah but I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a caffeine noob. So, All right, guys. 
let's uh let's let's cut to the chase for today our special guest like i said i've been really excited he's been on the podcast before and uh, actually that when he was on the last time uh the podcast uh blew up went well a lot of it's it's our highest uh viewing podcast but let me introduce you to him for those who are, are new to the podcast um and introduce our guest he's a cold case homicide detective popular national speaker and author of cold case christianity that was on the last podcast we did with him he's been featured repeatedly on dateline fox news and court tv and is a member of a three-generation law enforcement family he has a wife and four children and live in southern california welcome again jim warner wallace jay warner wallace thank you for coming on to the program thanks for if you notice abraham that when julio introduces himself he gives his last name but you're just abraham Abraham. i'm just abraham (laughs) yeah Abraham in Texas. That's right. Do. I, I'm mysterious. Yeah, yeah. I'm mysterious. <laughs> yeah. No, so uh, I, I, know he, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. So okay. That, yeah. Let everybody know your last name, Abraham. Yeah, Abraham Varilla. So, but you know, it's not as cool as Abraham. Abraham. Yeah. Abraham. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe he's reached the status of people who get to just use one name. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, or initials. Like we're bon- Bono. You know, yeah. like, yeah. I'm not sure what Bono. Just got one name. That's you good. Know, so. Well, I mean, no, Abraham no, in the Bible just—he didn't have a last name, you know. I'm just yeah. trying to follow his footsteps, yeah, there, you know, yeah. like Abraham. <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. I, I forgot Julio to, for, forgot to mention that he's also makes cameos in movies like God Is Not Dead too. Oh yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah, J, Jim Warner Wallace. Yeah, he mean, came it, out. What were you gonna say? Yeah, it was, it was. Believe me, it was not much of a cameo, you know. But I, it was. It was fun. <laughs> But what's interesting about that was they let me kind of write my own, uh, uh, you know, script on that, okay. my own words, and because they weren't quite sure what to say about how would you make this case in, in mm. a short period of time. So, but even then, they didn't tell us that and we kind of had the sense. Um, you know, Lee Strobel's also in that movie, and originally Gary Habermas, uh, the great, uh, he's great scholar yeah. of the resurrection, had a scene in that courtroom too. He's, if you get the DVD, he's in the extended scenes. But anyway, mm. so he we get this phone call. Yeah, I just you just have to kind of come up and. It's like doing any any other interview, you know. You've done tons of interviews. Of the, the DA will be interviewing. You know what the questions are because you're going to submit the questions and right. the answers. But they didn't tell us that. Yeah, you're going to do it, but you have to inflect it and say it word for word the same way eight times. Mm. Because we're going to move the cameras around and do this scene eight. It's going to take all day. Wow. So wow. so it was a bit of a challenge just to to uh, throw it the same way because then you, you know you'll have one camera that shows his reaction to you saying a certain thing if he's going to cut you off in the scene then he has to have that time properly so it became an exercise in, in watching for me anyway anyway just watching these uh, these uh, actors um, kind of practice their craft and it makes mm. you realize wow it's not easy you know? no. and, and to see them Ray Weiss is in the film as the uh, defense attorney mm-hmm. and uh, he's a pretty established actor in, in Hollywood and this guy was awesome to watch. Yeah. It was almost to the point where I had to remember, okay, it's, it's my turn. I got I to gotta <laughs> say this thing now because I'm just caught up in watching him do his thing. You know? Wow. And, and that's how good he was. Yeah. So it was it was a lot of fun, and um, I'll never forget it, and I'll probably never do anything like that again, but it was it was nice to uh, do, do it once. So I, I, I tell you, I, but I do tell you, that scene you were just as giving information, I was, and I was just like, oh, wow, like... <laughs> Like this is great. Like, they put they, they put Jay Warren Wallace on here, and he's like, it, it, I mean, yeah. it was it was it was by far one of the 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 best parts of, of the movie. Where hey, well, they, well, let me tell you the thing about that too, Abraham. I felt like, um, you know, people always criticize 
<clears throat> pardon me, I criticize the kind of uh, Christian films mm-hmm. as, as maybe being a couple of B films, whatever. Okay, I, I get that. <laughs> and there's also this criticism that maybe when we do uh, God's Not Dead films, that these apologetics films are really, would your atheist friends even go see this? Would they even would mm-hmm. they be impressed if they did see it? Well, that wasn't really my concern. I, I mean, my concern was not so much the, the audience that might see it who were non-believers. I was more concerned about the audience that would see it who were believers. I knew the believers yeah. more likely to attend this. And you and I both know that this idea that we can make a case evidentially for what we believe about Christianity is mm-hmm. so um, uh, otherworldly to most Christian believers. Yeah, that that I just wanted to show believers that we could make a case. Not yeah. like I was trying to make that case for non-believers mm-hmm. who might watch this. I was really more focused on uh, reaching people who already say they believe, but when you ask them why they believe, yeah. they're like, "Well, I was raised this way, you know, or I just I just do. I don't think you know God made me. You know, well, if that's the case, couldn't every believer of every religious belief in the world say that he was either raised that way or she was raised that way, yeah. or she just believes it? Doesn't need to have any, a reason to believe it. So I think that puts us. That would mean that we are no better or worse than every other kind of believer on the planet, but mm. we actually could investigate the evidence, and it does seem like you just read Romans. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so it, it appears that God has, has, is telling us that there is enough evidence in the natural world to at least uh, uh, deduce that there's a God who's created. Now, I'm not bringing you to Christianity, but at least bring you to some form of theism. Right. And then, yeah. of course, we have the special revelation of the eyewitnesses who saw the resurrection of Jesus that will take you across the line. But yeah. I just feel like, hey, I wanted to, I was, they asked me to do the movie. I, I didn't have my hesitation, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Because I thought, I'm, I was an atheist until I was 35, and I, you would never have drugged me into a theater to see a Christian film. <laughs> but I also realized that if all of us, as just regular kind of garden variety Christians, all right. of us took a more evidential approach, mm-hmm. well, then we would be more likely to share that way with our, and our coworkers, and right. you know, just whatever setting we happen to be in. And I don't think the movie has to be that you know don't don't bring your non-believing friends to the movie. Right. Take an approach that's that's illustrated in the movie, and then go reach your non-believing friends. Hmm. Yeah, because yeah. it does make you think as a Christian. Oh yeah. I, I know my wife was like, oh wow, like that's pretty amazing, and I was mm-hmm. like, yeah. And 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 for those people who might not Christians who might not have that information are going to crave that. You know, and this is why it's important that you know these books that that you wrote. You they're know, excellent too. They're just yeah. Absolutely. They're great stuff. Thank you. And, and you. and you guys wanted to talk today about the book that I think is the hardest of all the trilogy I've written. You know, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's, but I do think it's also the, one of the most, I actually think it's the most important book yeah. I've written of the three. And here's why I say that. Because young people are probably not, I mean, it's going to happen occasionally that they will be challenged at some point in their high school years, their junior high years. Maybe they'll begin to wonder if, you know, you can trust the document evidence of Christianity. That's all covered in cold case Christianity. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think what's going to happen first is that someone's going to convince them that there really is no need to invoke a God when we can scientifically or philosophically mm-hmm. explain everything in our universe without God. Yeah, yeah. And that form of kind of a naturalism, that, that, that idea that we can just rely on the natural environment, space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry can explain everything. And the better we become at investigating space, time, and matter, and the better chemists we become and the better physicists we become, yeah. the, the fewer questions we have, the fewer things we would uh, be inclined to attribute to God, because mm-hmm. we now have natural explanations involving nothing more than the natural elements of the universe and physics. Right. And, and if that's where we go, and most young people, I think, they're just, you know, I've, I've been collecting studies. 
of young people leaving the church, because there's always this question, are they really leaving the church? And mm-hmm. as I've been collecting these studies, I've been posting them on a, 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 a article on our website at coldcasechristianity.com, which is still one of the most popular. It had over 76,000 reads. Wow. wow. And it's just people who are reading trying to get caught up on the surveys. Mm-hmm. And what I find is the most interesting about the surveys is when they ask young people, yeah, it's true, but, uh, people are walking away from the church, uh, and it's happening at a more frequent pace. That's true. The core of the church does seem to be uh, pretty well established, and they don't seem to move. So, in other words, it's as though I, would, I always describe it this way: it's as though America is this box, and in the box there's a pot that fills seventy percent of the box, and that pot is everyone who calls themselves a Christian. Mm. That pot used to be eighty-six percent of the box, but now it's shrinking. It's at about seventy percent of the box. <laughs> wow. Now, in that pot, there is an espresso cup. That espresso cup are those Christians who actually know what Christianity teaches. Mm. Sadly, it's a smaller portion of the larger pot. Okay? Well, it appears that the statistics show us that the pot is shrinking. Wow. Those people who claim to be Christians are are shrinking. They're jumping into the larger box, and they will say now they have no religious affiliation. But the espresso cup is not shrinking. Interestingly, the espresso cup, those people who are in Bible-teaching churches who actually know what Christianity teaches, they're committed, they attend once, twice a week, they're not just your you know, right. kind of average, they are, they're really... That, it turns out that that group uh, is, for the most part, uh, fixed. It's not, it's not moving. So right. that's, that's encouraging, right? So mm, we can kind of yeah. say that we've got a good core that is still in the middle, but we have some work to do yeah. with the people who are a little bit less. Now, here's what's really interesting, why I bring it up. One of the most recent studies just came out this year by Barna. It's the Gen Z called the Culture, Beliefs, and Motivations Shaping the Next Generation. Gen Z are folks who are about three to about eighteen, mm-hmm. twenty, maybe. You know, the, you know, it's, it's kind of it, it's a flexible. You know, each generation is kind of flexible in terms of its limits. But mm-hmm. these young people, they simply asked them, um, "Why are you? Uh, what are the barriers? What are the, some of the barriers that you have that stand between you and embracing either theism or Christianity?" And let me t- show you what their top. Uh, five or six answers were. Uh, number one was, um, uh, I have a hard time believing that a good God would allow so much evil or suffering in the hmm. world. That is still and has always been, I think, the yeah. uh, biggest objection to, to God's existence yeah. and the problem yeah. of evil, which we talk about in God's crime scene. And we do that because we know it's a philosophical objection. Hmm. Yeah. The next one they have is, Christians are hypocrites. So that's a good one. <laughs> that, is, that, that jumps out, and that really doesn't have anything to do with making the case for Christianity. That's just yeah. about behavior. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, now, interestingly, let's look at the next couple. The third is, I believe science refutes too much of the Bible. Well, again, that's where we're back into God's crime scene, this book, because I wanted to show that science doesn't refute the Bible. It actually points to Yahweh. And then the third is, I don't believe, or the fourth, rather, this is now the fourth in a row, I don't believe in fairy tales. So if you believe that this <laughs> narrative about how the universe came into existence yeah. is a fairy tale. So three of the top four objections yeah. we try to, to deal with in God's crime scene. Yeah. And that's why I knew this was going to be an important book for me to write, mm-hmm. although I knew that I'm going to, okay, so here's what it comes down to. Are, are most of us who are listening to this podcast, are we ready to respond to philosophical issues like yeah. the problem of mind or consciousness or the problem of more objective moral uh, claims or the problem of evil? Mm-hmm. Uh, and are we ready scientifically to respond to uh, issues related to design of, of biology mm-hmm. and, and the origin of life and the fine-tuning and origin of the universe? So these are some big metaphysical questions. Yeah. And I knew that we needed a resource for kids, for for young people, but I also knew that it, you you don't you can't walk in and give them 
a kid's version. You, you're going to, I have a kid's version. I have yeah, God's yeah. Proxy for kids, but I knew I needed a book that you could take with you to college. Mm-hmm. And when somebody says something sideways in one of your classes or in high school, because by the way, the vast majority of people who leave the faith when asked, when did you first check out? They don't tell you it's, yeah, they're being pulled while they're in college. Yeah. But they typically will not say that they were in college when they walked away. They'll say they walked away between the ages of 12 and 17. Hmm. Wow. So they're walking away while they're with us. Yeah. Then they leave us and they find a home which is happy to accept the newly, right. uh, you know, ex, the new ex uh, theist uh, <laughs> because those those environments are relatively secular. So yeah. they would be at home in those environments. But it's not that those environments are necessarily the culprit. Mm-hmm. It's often happening while they're much younger. And Mr. Wallace, what can the church do better? about that. Yeah. I really appreciate that you have these books. You know, you got Cold Case Christianity for Kids, uh, God's, Crimes, um, God's Crime Scene for Kids. And thank you very much that you're not excluding the kids yeah. and, 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 and starting them up, starting them young. Yeah, you got to start early. And yeah. because, well, let's look at it this way. You guys are there in, in, in Texas, right? And mm. how close are you to the border? <laughs> oh, the, like, we live on Laredo, so this is the tip of the border. We're literally like two, three right. miles away from the border. Yeah. <laughs> okay, oh, I so thought we were like a block. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so of all the people who are living in Texas, you better than, say, someone living in Dallas would understand the importance of, of being bilingual. Agreed? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So if you said, you know, I want you folks living in Texas to, to become bilingual, um, one way to do it is that they would, all these, these consistent English speakers would uh, take Spanish in high school. And uh, that's fine. That's great. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, if they just adopted Spanish as their native, they said, you know what, from now on, we're not speaking any English anymore. We're just going to speak Spanish in the home. That the saturation environment in which uh, students either go abroad or they go to another country and they, right. have, they have no choice but to speak the language of that native country, they become the, the speakers, at least pretty good speakers, better than they ever would have been if this was just something they studied. Yeah. So what I think we have to do is harder than probably almost anything else we could do, mm. because it's not that I have to be, uh, you know, kind of read a book like mine. It's that I have to take a different view of what it means to be a Christian that is constantly examining right. everything in our world through a Christian worldview, through a Christian yes. lens. And it's not just saying, well, I, I kind of have this uh, very um, traditional um, uh, attend on Sundays kind of approach to right. my faith, but then I also read it once in a while and apologize. No, no. what you have to be is, is talking about, when I talk about God with my kids, it's always through the lens of what I'm discovering in the sciences and philosophy that supports right. this case. And because that's their native language now, mm-hmm. I think you have a better chance of seeing it that way. Because they're being bombarded so every be day. I'm sorry. That's right. They're being bombarded every day. So what typically day. happens, yeah. Abraham, typically what happens is we say, ah, let's hire a youth pastor, or let's get a speaker to come in, <laughs> and he'll do yeah. a Sunday, or he'll do four weeks in a row. Right. Or maybe let's find a youth pastor who will, well, instead what has to happen is that each of us as parents has to adopt this view of Christianity and live it in a way that's so conversational yeah. that it becomes the native language of our kids. Wow. Yeah, I forgot, what did John MacArthur, I don't know if it was John MacArthur, or it's somebody, somebody said this. But they said, um, or I think it was um, Paul Washer. He said, "You know, we 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 spend time, or we teach the kids to color Noah's Ark all the time, and we think that in the days of their college experience, when they finally meet actual, um, you know, rejection and atheism, that that there is going to." To, to help them in their apologetic and in their faith. Yeah. And th- though that does have uh, an aspect that's good, right? But um, yeah, it's yeah. raising up it your does. children to, to, 
to, like you said, saturate them in the faith, um, teach them what they believe in and why they believe it. And uh, it's good. It's great. And, and, and uh, we, we actually do have your, your, your apologetics books for kids here as well. Yeah, because more and more. Well, I can tell you, too, if you think about when, when I got, when I was appeared on God's Not Dead 2, I, I suddenly uh, was approached by talent agents and, and people in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I, so we ended up in the next year after that pitching shows to networks uh, either it was you know um, uh, you know discovery channel history channel a and e cnn originals fox news you, you name it we pitched a show and uh, there's always a space for these shows right around easter <laughs> so usually in the fall they'll come knocking on your door yeah. looking at content they can develop for the following year and here's what i discovered you can do a show about jesus Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible uh, was on, uh, I think, was that on History or wherever it was on? And then uh, 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 yeah. Book, of, Book of Acts was done by, um, uh, I think, NBC. So so you have you can, you can do a show about the Bible as long as you don't claim that it's true. Yes. So, for example, <laughs> you can do a show on Greek mythology if there was a big enough audience for it. Mm-hmm. And these companies, these networks, see the Bible as nothing more than Christian mythology. Mm, yeah. And they have no problem uh, doing Bible stories. Uh, and they'll do them as faithfully as you want to. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll do them exactly if you wanted to, and you could do a good enough artistic job. They'll do them word for word right from the Scripture. Right. But none of that means any of this is true. And they look at it as a faithful rendition of mythology, right. ancient mythology that's been recorded well, and, but they don't think it... Now, I'm coming up and saying, hey, no, I actually can show you why this is true. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Nobody, nobody is interested once they realize you're going to turn that corner. Wow. And they'll even ask you, so where did you, you're yeah. a case detective? Yeah. So where did you land this when you were first looking at it as an atheist? Well, I determined it was true. Yeah. You might as well just get up and leave the meeting. Yeah. <laughs> right there. <laughs> it's going to yes. last a few more minutes, but it's just polite platitudes because the reality of it is I just lost every, and what you realize as you're pitching this for the most parts of networks is you're often dealing with people who are the vast majority are not believers, yeah, and and they they're the ones mm-hmm. you're pitching it to. They're the ones who are representing you. They're the ones who are in the room with you. I've mm-hmm. been in rooms where there was eight people, and I was the only believer in the room. And you're trying to convince not eight non-believers to do a show in which you know you're, and you're trying your best not to not to be so adamant about how you would land this. But in yeah. the end, once they discover where you do land it, they're done. Yeah. So, Mr. Wallace, do you need a posse? Do you need a posse to go in these rooms like Julio and yeah. I? You know, yeah, we'll just, stand there, know, right? so we can, you yeah, know, are not outnumbered. And, 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 <laughs> yeah, and I think sometimes that would be good, but then I realize, you know what? Maybe it would be worse if if you, know, you try to kind of back in gently rather than it's it's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, my point yeah. is is yeah. My point is you you. This is where we are as a culture. Yes. And and this is where and again, sadly, I think many of us in the church. Are, have a similar mindset mm, yeah. that it's true for us, but we don't even care if it's really true. Yeah, uh, there are people in the church uh, that are really uh, I, I admire them in many ways. That probably if I had evidence to show that it wasn't true, they would still be in the church because it's doing something for them that they don't think they can have done anywhere else. And we should mm. be the place where things get done that don't get done anywhere else. Don't get me wrong, but at the same time. Um, we have to do better than that because our students, if nothing else, our, our kids need to know that, that they can not only color in the, uh, the ark, but they can make a defense right. for the nature of the God who built the ark. Yeah. Because these kids are being targeted in oh, school, man. like from grade school, like, hey, this is what I believe. And, you know, teachers who are not believers, I mean, they'll single out these kids in 
in grade school and mm-hmm. high school and in college. Yeah. And and they're just not prepared to defend themselves. Yeah. You know, not that you're Yeah, gonna... and I think it's even a more subtle and insidious kind of of of, of uh, movement that's occurring because it's not so much it's the pervasive naturalism of our culture which is becoming more secular in its thinking. Yeah. So it, I don't know so for example you know, I asked my son this uh, when he was a biochemist at UC Santa Barbara, mm-hmm. and he's now a, a resident, uh, he's an anesthesiologist, but he was in undergraduate work. He was in one of the more uh, naturalistic environments, biochemistry. He didn't have any Christians in any of his undergraduate work. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it, I asked him, did, did they, was it hostile? Was it hard for you? He says, no, just no one talks about it. It's not brought up that way. But, mm-hmm. so it's not as though people are actively trying to say, okay, who, who are the Christians? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get rid of those people first. Right. But instead, there's just this pervasive sense that everything could be explained by the natural sciences, and there's no reason to even point. Now, he always knew that in the midst of all that, he was doing work in DNA labs, and he knew that the information in DNA was problematic to explain with just uh, physics. It was going to be hard to explain the kind of thing he was seeing and dealing with in DNA studies uh, so he he it, he was not going to be shaken from his belief in God by what he was experiencing in the undergraduate. But what I thought was interesting is is he didn't describe it as this this aggressive hostile environment. Okay. He just described it. And what, so I, again, yeah. what happens is students become naturalists before they leave to go to college, and then college just amplifies those beliefs. Mm, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that that brings me up to like okay, so let's go ahead and go into the book because this is a per- perfect segue yeah, here. Yeah, that was that excellent. Yep. And so. Contemporary naturalism is largely a restatement, however more sophisticated as it may appear, of known ideas in the past. So nat- naturalism is not only, like Jay Warner Wallace was saying, as we're talking about right here, it's not only the predominant worldview, but it's also the most influential and the most antagonistic to the Christian faith. And so what naturalism believes in is that that nothing exists outside of the uh, of, of the natural order, and so we we even have Carl Sagan. He said the universe is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be, and so um, and this is really what truly the Christian the, the Christian faith is is going up against. So, um, Jim, at the, the the beginning of the book, in the introduction of your book, God's Crime Scene, you described a case you had, which at first looked like a suicide. However, according to the evidence of the crime, you could not account for all the evidence inside. The room. Um, can you briefly go through the investigation and how this pertains uh, to the existence of, of God? How this sort of investigation would, would lead us to to saying that naturalism is is false? So I've always tried to to, to, to find illustrate. Maybe it's just the youth pastor. I mean, I'm always trying to find a way to take complicated ideas and pitch them out in a way right. that are, are easily to see. And so when you do that, you start using analogies and metaphors, and then you get attacked later on. Oh, your analogy or metaphor is too simple. But I think this analogy actually holds quite well. It's great. Yeah, and, it's, and it works awesome. for us. And I, and I will I will show you what it, what it is. It's this it's this sense that when I work death scenes, you're trying to determine before you start if it's a crime scene because if it's not a crime scene, we're not going to work it. We're going to leave. Uh, people die four different ways. They either die by natural causes. Well, no, one, no detective is going to work a natural death. They're going to die by suicide. Well, we don't actually investigate suicides either. Well, the coroner's office does most of that work. Uh, they might die by accident, in which case it would be no crime for us to investigate, or they might have been murdered. That's when we get involved. It's in the murder side that we get involved. So the first three ways to die, natural, accidental, and suicide, we're just not interested in those. I hate to say it. As a yeah. matter of fact, we would love to determine that was the case up front so we can go home. But the reality is once we determine that we've got the potential for uh, even a reasonable uh, inference for mm. homicide, then we're stuck. We've got to work this thing until we can exclude that. Right. And how we sometimes do it is let's 
game I call inside or outside the room. In other words, when you get there and the body is in the room, let's say there's a pistol laying by his side, he's got a single gunshot wound, okay, great. The question is, can I explain everything that's in the room by staying in the room? If I can't explain it by staying in the room, I've got to shift to home. In other words, let's put it this way. Okay, I got a, sus- I got a victim, rather, he's lying in the room, he's, mm-hmm. got a, he's got a gunshot wound, and there's one pistol in the room, but it turns out that that pistol is his. He's always owned it, he keeps it in the room. Uh, I can now explain the existence of the pistol by staying in the room. That was his pistol. And if I find a, a note, a suicide note, written in his handwriting on paper that I find elsewhere in the room, I can even explain the note uh, right. by staying inside the room. On the other hand, if the note's written in some foreign uh, handwriting and has foreign fingerprint or DNA on it, mm. and it does not uh, belong to any other paper that's in the room, and the pistol's not his, it's from a stranger that uh, doesn't live with him, and there's bloody footprints leading out of the room, well, now the best explanation for what I have in the room is a cause that's outside the room. In other mm-hmm. words, yes. uh, I'm looking for the evidence of an intruder. Someone uh, who does not live there, who uh, should not be there, who ultimately was there and is the cause of this crime. So when we do these kinds of cases, we're often just doing a simple inside or outside the room investigation. So, so couldn't the same thing be applied to the, the natural universe? We have this natural environment I call it the room of the universe. Can we explain everything we see inside the room by staying inside the room? If we can, then all we have to have is space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. That's what's in the room. Hmm. That's what starts off in the room. So if we can get everything we see in the room, but only using the stuff that's in the room, yeah. then we don't have to invoke an intruder. Right. And in this case, the intruder has to span the entire cosmos. We're looking at a divine intruder. So one of the ways you, you do it is you, you simply ask, well, what's in the room we have to explain? What, what is the evidence? You know, in the, in the crime scene, we had a body and a pistol and a note, and we had some bloody footprints. So what's in the room of the universe we have to explain? I think there are eight things that all of us, regardless of where we land, religiously or non-religiously, mm-hmm. uh-huh. we have to explain these eight things. The origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the, the, the appearance of design and biology, the consciousness uh, and free agency, and uh, finally, moral objective moral truths and the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. All of these things we experience, I experienced them for 35 years as an atheist. I had to answer those questions. I had yeah. answers for those questions, if you would have asked me. Uh, and many people who are on the other side of this issue, who are atheists, who are writing books, uh, trying to explain free agency, trying to explain consciousness, trying to yeah. explain the origin of life from a naturalistic perspective. In other words, all they've got is the stuff that's in the room. Mm-hmm. Space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Well, what yeah. if the stuff we see in the room actually points to the best explanation, which doesn't involve space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, but in, instead involves a creative mind? If that's what we're looking at, then we have to jump out of the room and, and, and follow the evidence where it leads to the best explanation. Mm-hmm. And that means we're back into an intruder investigation. And that's what I try to do in the book, is, is look at those eight pieces of evidence, use that model inside or outside the room, and show how the answers that have been given by scientists who reject God and philosophers who reject God just don't work. Yeah. And they're unsatisfying. And the yeah. best explanation remains a cause that's out time of, outside of space, time, and matter. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we, where we uh, I think, that the evidence points. That's why I say that I've never seen uh, science as hostile to faith. No, because, not at all. Uh, science, yeah, it points to something. Now, 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 I'll say this up front. If you think that every single answer can be given 
that there's no open questions in any view, either a theistic view or an atheistic view, mm-hmm. you're crazy. No one has all the answers. Right. That's why at the end of these kinds of investigations, I have to ask jurors to take a step and say, look, the, the evidence points in this direction or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not going to be able to answer all your questions. Right. And I'm not going to be able to, to walk you all. I don't have a video of this suspect committing this crime, okay? Yeah. If I had that, we wouldn't be in trial. He probably would have confessed to it right away. What we have instead is a series of a, a, a number of pieces of evidence that point you to this, this conclusion. And then you're going to have to take not a step of faith, really, but of, of reasonable inference to the yeah. best uh, inference from the evidence. And that's what I think we're trying to do with this, too. And that's what I believe faith is. Faith is taking that step. And Jesus was similar in his approach. Mm-hmm. He didn't just say, you know, he could have provided no evidence of miracles at all. He could have never healed anyone, never committed, never uh, performed a miracle, and never rose from the grave, just asked us to believe in spite of But he never did that. He always would say, look, if you don't believe me, what I'm saying, at least believe on the evidence of these miracles I've worked in front of you. He says that over and over again in the Gospel of John, for mm. example. And that was helpful to me as an atheist who was saying, right. I think that if this is true, he would have done more than just say it. He would have given me, and he, of course he did. So that's, I think, an approach we can take as Christians. And, yeah. And, and Luke was very, in, in, the, in the beginning uh, uh, verses of Luke, we see that when Luke is investigating all this, he, he in chapter 3, he's, he's very clear that I investigated this thoroughly so that you may know that everything that I'm telling you here is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So we have what we have then in these four accounts is we have two that are written, at least, uh, you know, this is another thing that atheists will challenge, is the authorship of the Gospels, but two, Matthew and John, would be uh, have been apostles who would have seen this, and there's a, it's clear that John, the, the author of the Gospel of John, wants us to see him that way. He mm-hmm. that identifies him as somebody who was there, who saw this himself. Uh, you have Peter, both Peter and John in their epistles, saying, hey, that they were eyewitnesses, we're not making up fancy stories, we just right. saw this with our own eyes, we touched it with our own hands, all of that. And then you, you have two authors, Mark and um, Luke, who are not eyewitnesses, at least we don't think that Luke is an eyewitness of Mm-hmm. Sorry that Mark is an eyewitness, but we do know from Papias, a bishop, an uh, early bishop in Christian history, who said that uh, Mark wrote his his, his uh, uh, gospel sitting at the feet of Peter as he was teaching in Rome. So I have always interpreted Mark's. Um, collection of, of data to be data that comes from Peter. And then, of course, uh, Luke says that, you know, he was with the, uh, the apostles in the, God, in the book of Acts, during mm-hmm. that time in the book of Acts, but he was interviewing, so he had access to Mark, and by the way, he quotes Mark more than any other original source in mm-hmm. his, his gospel, and he tells you up front that I have investigated this by talking to those who saw the, uh, Jesus personally. So, so he is basically doing our work as a detective and talking to the eyewitnesses. Yeah, yeah. And going back to Romans 1, we read that, um, that God could be seen uh, in, in, in his attributes in all of creation. And so going back to naturalism, um, the, the way that I want our viewers to look at this is sort of uh, as a box, as Jay Warner Wallace was saying, inside a room. And so whether the universe to a naturalist is infinite or finite, nothing exists in their worldview that is independent of the natural order or its process. Naturalists believe that whatever happens within nature has its cause in something else that existed within the natural order. And so, um, Jim, there's a section in your book called The, Phys- the Philosophical Evidence for the Impossibility of Infinite 
regress. So we, we, we see, so you see how tough this is already. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Are you serious? Oh, yeah. And, and so you want me to look at that? I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. It's but, crazy. But yeah. You have to kind of master some of these. This is in a section that talks about the beginning of the universe. Yes. I'm a cumulative case guy. So if I said, I just have one piece of evidence, I just have a one statement of an eyewitness who saw this. Mm-hmm. Well, then the defense can pretty easily knock down your case by just discrediting right. that one piece of evidence you have that one eyewitness. So I've always had more confidence when I've got several um, kinds of evidence, several pieces of evidence that point to the same conclusion. And yeah. if those pieces of evidence can come from different disciplines, like I've got fingerprints and I've got DNA and I've mm. got an eyewitness and I've got some material evidence, I've got yeah. some behavioral evidence, I've got his statements, these are very different categories of evidence. So when yeah. we're looking at the beginning of the universe, here's the problem that everyone has to, to address. If the universe leapt into existence from nothing. This is just the first piece of evidence we got to look at in the room. Hmm. If the universe came into existence from nothing, and this is what Big Bang cosmology, the standard cosmological argument, has always uh, argued, is that all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing. In other words, yeah. it was not space, time, and matter did not exist before the beginning of the universe. Uh-huh. So right away, if that's true, you know philosophically and scientifically that whatever is the cause of all the universe cannot itself be spatial, material, or temporal because no space, time, and matter existed yeah. before the beginning of the universe. That's not that's a claim of scripture for sure, Genesis one. But more importantly, it's a claim of the standard cosmological model. And so what you have then is a number of scientists who would like to kind of avoid that conclusion. That mm-hmm. we're looking for something non-spatial, non-material, non-temporal. Because if that's the case, what are we talking about when we talk about naturalism or nature? This is stuff in space, time, and matter. It's, it's yeah. the material stuff of the universe. And, and so these folks do not believe that there is an immaterial reality. Yeah. They might believe in the existence of brains, but they would deny the existence of the immaterial mind. Hmm. They might believe in bodies, but they would deny the existence of the immaterial soul. They might believe in physics and matter and space and time, but they would deny something immaterial like uh, like like demons, uh, like, like God, like mm-hmm. angels. These are immaterial beings, intelligent immaterial beings, that they would deny exist. Hmm. So, if that's the case, uh, then what is the cause of the universe? It cannot be mind or a, a being that creates intentionally. It has to be some automatic process, some automatic outcome of physics. Yeah. Um, but the problem, of course, is that physics has nothing on which to act until the beginning of the universe, mm-hmm. in which now we have space, time, and matter. And people will say, well, wait a minute, well, space isn't something. No, it is something. Yeah. Uh, well, what, if, if space, this void that we yes. call space is yeah. something, yes. So what is nothing? Well, it's what Aristotle says. It's what rocks dream, dream about. about. <laughs> nothing, okay? Everything else is something. So we have to to kind of keep our, our definitions straight, and, and that's what we try to do in the book, is to show that, that it's not unusual for defense attorneys to try to uh, change a definition in order to, to make their case. So... Uh, we don't, we can't allow it to happen here. Nothing is nothing, uh, and yeah. so you're going to have to to uh, deal with that. And yeah. so philosophically, uh, that's the problem. And of course, you have another problem. Uh, this is what you talked about with this re- infinite regress. Yeah, is I that like we this. know that the universe. One piece of evidence that points to a universe that has a beginning is what I call the infinite racetrack. If I put you at a starting line and I say I want you to run 100 yards and I show you the, the finish line. 
you say, okay, I can do that. So you get the starting line. But before you begin, I say, oh, hang on, step back a foot. Now start. And you step back a foot. But before you can start from that position, I also say, oh, stop. And every time you try to start, I stop you and push you backwards. Well, you're never going to get to the finish line because I never allow you to start. I keep on pushing the starting line back before you can get going. Well, if today is the finish line, right now in this moment that we're having this conversation, you can't get to this moment unless there's a beginning to time, a start to the racetrack that allows you to start to get here. If that yeah. thing is slipping off into the infinite past, it's like me telling you, take a step backwards, take a step backwards, take a step backwards. I'm never letting you get a start to get to here. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening with this philosophy of infinite regress. And that's yeah. why even philosophy, along with the theoretical physics, along with a number of different lines of evidence that I give you in the book, all of this points to a universe that leapt into existence from nothing. And I tried in the book also to go through all the alternatives that um, atheists will use and try to, to trying to avoid. You know, they'll say, "Well, maybe the universe." Well, for example, one of the evidences is that we see our universe is expanding. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you run this backwards in time, that means it's expanding from something. Yep. So if, we, if it's getting bigger in the future, we can run it backwards, and in the past it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it, it coalesces into one point, yeah. this cosmic singularity. So the expanding universe, it has to be explained. And they'll sometimes say, well, isn't it possible that the universe has been expanding eternally? Isn't it possible that it's cycling back and forth between like a, like a balloon that inflates and then deflates and then inflates right. again? Isn't that part of some maybe larger multiverse environment or an internal environment? I mean, they've got all of these ways of trying to exp- to solve the problem, which they recognize. Right. If we are in a universe that has a beginning, a start from nothing, then we've got to explain, um, you know, what is the the causal. Again, we all agree, by the way. And some people will say, "Well, Jim, if you think God caused the universe, what caused God?" Well, back up for a second. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of us believe there's a cause. Because yes. all of us believe we're in a universe that began to exist. Mm-hmm. That begins to exist must have a beginner. The only question is, is the cause personal or impersonal? Mm-hmm. Is the cause a personal being, or is the cause the impersonal force of physics? Mm-hmm. Or some other thing we don't understand that's physical? Right. And that's the only question that's left. I actually think, though, that the rest of the case we make in God's crime scene, for example, DNA evidence, demonstrates that the cause must be a mind that thinks yes. intelligently because we have information in DNA, and you can only get information from intelligent sources. Yeah. You can't even get you can't get information from physics. If you can, uh-huh. that burdens. By the way, have you ever heard this 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 kind of complaint? It says, look, if you think that God, I don't see God, and if you think that God is the, the, the beginning, exists at all and is the cause of all of this, that burden of proof's on you. Mm-hmm. You have the burden of proof as a theist, as somebody who believes in God, mm-hmm. to describe for me something that I, I don't think I see. Mm-hmm. Well, no, hang on. That doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. At crime scenes, everyone has a similar burden of proof. If I walk into that crime scene and I say, wow, I see all these eight pieces of evidence, I think the husband right. did it. But my partner says, I see the same eight pieces, but I think his sister did it. Okay, yeah. great. I have a burden of proof to show why I think the eight pieces point to my husband, hmm. and you have a burden of proof to, to show how the eight pieces point to the husband's you know, sister, whatever you think it is. Right. Again, whatever we think the causal agent is, 
we have to make a case for why that causal agent is sufficient to cause those pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens here. If you think that naturalism, just physics, chemistry, space, time, and matter can get you the beginning of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of life, the, the appearance of design and biology, the mind, free agency, moral truths, and evil, yeah. you know, or the standard of righteousness by which we judge evil, if you think you can get that from physics and chemistry, that burden of proof's on you hmm. as a naturalist. Yeah. And so we have a similar burden of proof here. Yeah. And that's my point, is that I can show why the, all the attributes, that's why I try to do at the end of each chapter, is to show that if this is true, this is the evidence in the box, well, then this is the description of the kind of cause that would be sufficient to account for those pieces of evidence. And at the end, we're going to get a suspect profile that's driven by nothing more than the evidence we see in the universe. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, once you do that, oh, that suspect description looks suspiciously like Yahweh. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's <laughs> yeah. why I think the best explanation is yeah. Yahweh. Yeah, and I would say, too, that that question, if God created everything, well, then who made God? And so you have that infinite ingre- like regress that you're talking about. And I, I, I always say, well, that's a categorical error because um, God by definition, is something that is eternal. Yeah. And so, you know, you and, and then I, I like the way John Lennox switched it on Richard Dawkins, and he said, well, you have to believe something else that's eternal as well, too, and that's what you find with many atheists as well, am I correct, Jim, in that they they have to sort of ground themselves in something eternal, whether, rather it be time, yeah. uh, matter, energy, and you kind of see that, so not even they could evade that question. Because They have know, to answer it. Right. They have to answer yeah, it. And so the two ways you just answer are perfect. I always say, well, here's the problem. You, if by definition, the, the Christian definition, the theistic definition of God has always been God is the uncreated creator. So what you're asking yeah. is who created the uncreated creator? Well, wait a minute, okay? And by the way, (laughs) both of us believe in an uncreated creator. We both believe we do. Yeah. That is the cause of the universe that is itself uncaused. Now yeah. you might say, well, it's a it's a quantum universe generator, you know, of some sort, some kind of quantum vacuum that creates a multiverse, and we are one of those uh, universes that emerges from that environment. Which, of course, you can't have an environment unless you have space, time, and matter. But again, that's a whole other issue. Yeah. But if, if, if somehow you could, you're suggesting then that that quantum universe, that uh, a multiverse generator, is itself eternal. Yeah. We it, otherwise you got to say, well, who created that? You yeah. also got a God problem. Yes. Yeah, because you, you, you can't have <laughs> the multiverse generator. You can't. So, you, you, so you, both of us are looking for the same thing. The only question left is: Is the eternal, uncaused first cause of the universe mm-hmm. personal or impersonal? That's the only question we're debating here. Yeah. It's not that we're debating whether or not there is an uncaused first cause. We all agree on that. What we are looking for is to see: Is it personal? or impersonal, and that's why the evidence is so important, because it always points to personhood. If, yeah. if you, you can't get mind, you can't get more... Remember, all moral truths, if we agree that it's not right, this entire Me Too movement right now of women <laughs> who are being abused, if we agree that's not right, yeah, are yeah. we saying that's not right because just we personally don't like it? Yeah. Are we yeah. saying it's not right because our culture in this moment in history doesn't seem to like it? Because uh, if that's the case, we could find environments in which it would be okay, and cultures in yeah. which it would be okay, and, and people to whom it would be okay. No, we're saying that what happened is objectively evil. Yeah. It should, it, 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 I don't care where you are on the planet or where you are on history, it transcends persons who mm-hmm. might believe differently. It transcends cultures that might believe differently, nations. But if there's an alternative planet in which it wouldn't be okay for Klingons to do this to themselves. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying is there's some standard 
that transcends everything. Well, what would that be? And by the way, moral uh, duties, moral uh, truths are married to moral obligations and duties. It's not just a moral truth. It's a moral obligation, and obligations are always between persons. Think about uh, that for a second. Yeah, because if you it's are not morally obligated to your desk, uh, but it, you are morally obligated to Abraham sitting on the other side of your desk. <laughs> it's between persons. So we're not looking just for a transcendent uh, source of moral truth. Right. We're looking for the transcendent moral person to whom you are obligated. Yeah. Physics will not get you um, moral obligations. It might get you moral truths in some mm. uh, way of changing the definitions, but it will never get you moral obligations because those are always between people. And yeah, yeah, just to use this, uh, the Star Trek reference, so if it's wrong in the Klingon Empire, it's wrong in the Romulan Empire, right? <laughs> that's right, yeah, that's right. Every, every, and I'm sure that in the new, I've not watched the new Star Trek series, I want to start watching it, but I haven't watched it, so there's probably a whole new series of, of uh, aliens that are out there, whatever they are, maybe, the hive or whatever it is, I'm sure that it would be wrong for them, too. And that's another reason why I say that the best, again, can can an impersonal set of forces get you moral obligations? A better explanation is some kind of person, a being, uh, that grounds uh, moral truths objectively. It transcends the universe. That's why we feel these transcendent truths exist because they're grounded in God, and why we feel they're obligatory is because they're grounded in a transcendent being, a person, uh, and that's why we feel that kind of obligation. So, and even that, so you couple that with the information that we need intelligence to get that, the fact that we have minds, which only makes sense if we have been created by a divine mind that is creating in its image, then we can make some sense of mind. So in other words, all these things we experience have a better explanation outside the room. Mm. Uh, in a, yes. a supernatural, um, you know, uh, being that transcends space, time, and matter, yes. and that's why I think a lot of us. And this is exactly—I'll just tell you guys—this is exactly how I became a Christian. I read through the Gospels, and I got to the point where I was like, "Wow, you know, except for the fact that this is a miracle, and every other way you could um, uh, test it, the resurrection accounts do pretty good. They stand up, but." Yep. They describe something miraculous, and for me, that was the deal killer. Yeah, I'm not a, a miracle person. I'm a naturalist, a philosophical naturalist. Mm. But as I examined the evidence in the universe, that was the next step. That's why I wrote these books in this order. First was, did I trust the eyewitness accounts? Second was, could I let down my bias against the supernatural? Mm-hmm. And that's what this investigation in God's crime scene did for me. Yeah. Wow, and you can't have a, a, a big bang without a big banger, right? For the other side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we all agree because you're right. Because a lot of, of us who are in the church, I kind of kind of grown up to resist any uh, scientific offering that didn't, you know, uh, come with the language of, of the, the pulpit, you know. And so right. the big bang theory will sometimes cause people to kind of knee jerk and say, "Oh, he's an natural. He's, he's he's allowing science to infiltrate." <laughs> Well, look, uh, it, Romans 1 tells us that if there is a God, yeah. that everything we see in the natural world would be consistent and in some way point back to the existence of that God. That's all we're doing here, yeah. is we're saying we're allowing the science to tell us something. Now, we have to be very careful, because science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. And we've been saying that for years, Frank Turk and I. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's got another great book called Stealing from God. That's, right. the, That's another good book. Yeah. yeah, so we have that so, one here. Yeah, so the idea here is that we have to be careful not to allow our, our, our belief up front that there is a God, or our belief up front that there isn't. Yeah. 
dictate the answer before we examine the evidence. Yeah. And I, I don't want to be that kind of a person as a believer, and I also don't want my atheist friends to be that kind of people, those kind of people as, as atheists. But yeah. it's, it's tempting for us to do that. Yeah. So it's important. So in the end, what I try to do is to kind of look through these eight pieces of evidence and then say, okay, what would the suspect have to look like mm-hmm. that could be the reasonable explanation for all eight things? Mm-hmm. And that was important to me, is to be able to show that to my readers, that you can actually develop a, um, a suspect description, which I, I often do this when my, on my casework, right? You don't know what we're looking for yet, but I know it's going to look something like this, you know, and I can give you like eight or nine attributes of, of what this... Um, the suspect might look like, given just what I see at the crime scene. So what right. I try to do is, is do the same thing here. And I found that there are, are we, we're looking for something that is external to the universe in the sense that it's non-spatial, atemporal, mm-hmm. non-material. It cannot be caused. It has to be uncaused. It has to be powerful enough to create everything that we see in the universe. It has to be purposeful enough to produce the fine-tuning, which the whole other show we could do is on fine-tuning. Oh, I would All those cosmological yes. constants that are precisely tuned so that life can emerge. It has to be intelligent and communicative to, to be uh, responsible for the DNA, which is why we have an origin of life to begin with. And then it has to be creative and resourceful to, to we see design and creativity mm-hmm. in biology. It has to be a mind because we are minds also. It has to be free to choose because uh, it has to be able to create. You cannot create if you're not free to choose. Yeah. And it has to be personal so it can result, uh, be responsible for the moral obligations we see. It has to be the source of all moral obligation and truth. And yeah. finally, it has to be the divine standard of good that, that we see a variation you know, the shadow instead of the sunlight, and we say right. that's not good because we know there's a standard of good that we all agree on that transcends all of us, that that comes mm, yeah. from the nature of God. So those are the 11 things I think we're looking for, yeah. Yeah. and it turns out that physics won't give you those 11 things. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, no. Only God will give you those 11 <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. So. so I wanted to go on the, on, the, on the topic of DNA. I have a clip, so I'm going to play it for the audience, and Jim, listen okay. to it. Um, this was a podcast, Apologia Radio, excellent podcast that I recommend everyone to go subscribe to, along with our <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes. and they the title of the podcast is Silly Atheist Science is for Christians, <laughs> and so I thought it was. It. But it's a great, it's a great. It, it's towards the end. It's in minute four, uh, forty three minutes and thirty four seconds, and they bring on someone who's a part of their congregation. He's a, he has his doctorates in, in I believe it's chemistry, and so uh, okay. he's a scientist, and he he talks. I mean, it's just a thirty minute clip, so I'm gonna, I'm going to play it, and it's just very. Interesting. Thirty second clip. What, what he has to say? No, not thirty minutes. Thirty seconds. <laughs> All right. So here it goes. Here it goes. Here it goes. Well, how similar to a, a computer code that you might learn um, genetics really is, and it's it's not as it's not as directly linear as a lot of our languages are. Um, it's it's far far more complicated than that. And that and to that point, I I did some quick maths as the british love to say because that's i guess a more entertaining way to say it or they just love extra letters i'm not really sure um i i looked up the information density of dna just to give people some kind of an idea this is Um, i know when we were talking the other day this this is fun this get ready you guys get ready if you checked out if you checked out right now i don't care what you're doing stop Listen to this. It's going to blow your mind. Right. I might have to repeat it twice just so that people really understand it. So the information density of DNA as we understand it right now is about 2.2 petabytes per gram. So this is something that to try and put that into a frame of reference people can maybe understand. 
um, there's a there's kind of a known density of DNA, and it's like 1.4 grams per milliliter. So using that volume as an estimate, the Facebook data center is estimated to have something like 100 petabyte storage capacity, and this is a number from 2013, so this is a little bit outdated in terms of current capacity, but they to store the entire capacity of Facebook, all of it, the whole thing, um, that's 100 petabytes. So you could store, in terms of DNA, if you were to transcode that same information in about 33 milliliters, or for us Merkins who don't know what that is, that's about two <laughs> tablespoons. Wow. Um, that's not a lot. That's just a little bitty, just a little handful of DNA could contain the entirety of Facebook. All the data, comment sections, posts, pictures, videos, of, everything. Everything. The video That is insane, Jim. Wow. <laughs> so Yeah, it is. And so the the question becomes then, you know, and I try to to throw it in a way that people can can understand it. Yeah. But, but what we have is we have instructions. And and so the the person who I think has done the the best kind of um Although his book is hard to read, uh, but I think it's done a great job in terms of giving us uh, data, is Werner Gitt, Dr. Werner Gitt, right? So mm-hmm. he's a guy who has done these levels of information. Because here's the argument, folks. The argument is, okay, if you're saying that that sequence of nucleotides in DNA, four nucleotides that are put in a certain order, if you're arguing that that order is not random, it's actually... Uh, thoughtfully, or not thoughtfully, I don't, I don't want to jump to that conclusion yet, it is uh, specifically uh, ordered in such a way as to cause a certain outcome, we would say that that's information. Mm-hmm. And the problem, of course, is we have no experience anywhere in the history of science or the history of the universe in which information can ever be yeah. attributed to anything other than intelligence. Yeah. So if, you've got, if you think you can get information from physics, you've got to show me how. Because I can show you how I, as an intelligent being, can produce information, that we get that 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 that's been demonstrated repeatedly throughout right. history, but we have not seen how physics, just random uh, uh, placement and physics acting on space, time, and matter, can produce specific specificity, specific sequences mm-hmm. of these four nucleotides. We can't even explain why these how these four nucleotides are attached yeah. to the DNA molecule in this wow. order. We can't do any of that. But the point is. Uh, so it was a response to that. Well, the response is only one of a couple of ways you can come at this. You can say, well, uh, that is information, and that, that physics can cause information. Fine. That burden's on you, then. Show me how that happens. No one can do it. Or you would say, well, it's not really information. Okay, mm-hmm. then we can attack that issue. Or, or you know, so, so those are the two ways you've got to come at it. Either one, physics can get it done, or two, it's not information the way you're thinking of it. Yeah. Well, so what Werner Gitt does is he comes in and he says, hey, there are levels of information. And he gives you five levels. I'll mm-hmm. go through all that now. But, but it shows that, hey, you might be able to get level one by staying inside the room and just yeah. using space, time, and matter. But that's not what DNA is. It's beyond the first level of information. It's actually at level five. And there's wow. four – it means it's four levels above what you can get by staying in the room. Yes. You're wow. four levels outside the yeah. room. Because the very second level pushes you outside the room, and I try to show this in the book. Here are yeah. the four levels. I give you examples in, 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 in sentences of what these four levels look like, and then you can make a decision yourself. The reality mm-hmm. of it is that you are not going to get 
the kind of complexity and specificity that we see in DNA. Yeah. That information is information. Sorry, it, I mean, it, it stinks, but in, in, and that's why the battlefield right now is starting to shift to the information theories yep. that are out there, because yeah. they realize that, 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 that they used to think that all of, 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 of life, all of everything in the universe was grounded in physics, yeah. and now we're starting to shift that and say, well, no, maybe it's grounded in information. Yeah. And we've got to figure out how, what are our information theories that describe how this gets here. All of this yeah. points to the mind of God. Yes, and that's why we we wanted to kind of do a whole chapter on that information theory. Yeah, wow. yeah, and and I think of the verse in the Bible where it says we are beautifully and wonderfully made. And so I I always I tell my students all the time in my senior group, I say you know we think of that more cosmetically, like oh look we look beautiful. I have a you know <laughs> I have a really nice beard. For those of you who can't see me, I don't have a camera, but I have a really nice looking beard. Anyway, but it's not talking about that. It's talking about that we are perfectly designed, man. Yeah, I mean we're yeah, interesting. I mean it's it, crazy. You know, I tried it at the end of the book. It is crazy, and I told you at the end of the book was just to really show how I don't use any scripture anywhere in the book until the very last chapter. And I yes. use a lot of scripture there because the idea was: can you make a case for theism, a case for God's existence, without ever opening your Bible? Yeah. Of course, you could because everything mm-hmm. you're going to discover in science is 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 very similar to what you're going to read in your Bible. Yes, and one of the things you'll see is that Jesus is described number one as the Creator in John one. So it's not as though he is created by God; he is there at the creation of the universe. Yes. And then we have him described as the author of life. Mm. And isn't that interesting that in the end, it's the author of information in DNA that is the origin of life is dependent upon. Mm. So it does seem, again, that either they just got really lucky and happened to say what was true, or you have God speaking to us through Scripture, uh, through Revelation. It's one of those two things. I think the yes. better, you know, if you look at the, I think the case is cumulative, mm-hmm. and you have to look at it that way. Yeah. And that's why we have to start speaking about this. Well, it's kind of in where we started. That's why, yeah. as families, we have to start to to talk about these things as part of our common language of faith. Yeah. Is that is to marry these... I, look what I just read today in, in, in science. Look what I just read today in, in the psychology papers. Look yeah. what I just read today. And we have to be able to, to, to not... See that create this partition between the world around us and our our religious views that we experience on Sundays. But we mm-hmm. need to be embracing everything through yes. our Christian lens every day in front of our kids, so they can see what reasonable Christianity looks like. Yes, Amen. All right. Yeah. Well, it's it's the top of the hour, Jim. I know you got to get going. And again, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's such a pleasure to have you on and talk with you, man. It's great. Yeah. Well, I, thanks, guys. I really appreciate. You know, I feel like we have a kind of a joint mission here that we do together. So let's yes. do it again. Yes. Oh, absolutely. yes, for sure. So um, you could, if you're down here in our location, you're listening to this podcast. If you um, or you want to order the book through uh, Amazon, you can find us at Bridge Ministry. But God's Crime Scene is his book. Jim, where else can they find you at? At coldcasechristianity.com. I've got all the resources, uh, five free resources every week. You can mm. download those nice. resources and keep them. That's great. Yes. And I hope that they are helpful to people as they kind of make this journey. It's got to be an everyday thing, so let's start every day. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, guys. This is just a sneak peek into possibly in the future. We might be having John Lennox come on the podcast. Please be praying for that. <laughs> Please be praying oh, for that. God. So, uh, yeah, but he's a heavy hitter, man. It would be great yeah. to have him on the podcast. We're, we're in talks with his ministry. Um, but anyway, um, Jim, again, thank you for, guys, uh, thank you for coming on. We're going to go ahead and, uh, and cut it off here. Uh, I don't know if you have anything okay. else to say for the listeners. No, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on the show. You awesome. Know, I value you guys. All right, All right guys. Um, well, 
uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, oh, and soul. love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yes. And remember, guys, get into your word. Get into, uh, go buy a, a Jim Moore Wallace's books, Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene. They're excellent, digestible. It's not something that's super complex. Uh, and it, it's definitely going to give you um, a, a boost of what you believe in and why you believe it. And uh, as First Peter 3.15 says, um, always be ready to give a uh, reasonable defense for, for the hope that is in you and do it with respect and kindness. So, um, all right, guys, we're out. Awesome. See ya. Take care. <laughs>